Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number Nine, Maggie Whitman, Hindsight Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Maggie Whitman. Maggie is an assistant professor of law at the University of Nebraska College of Law. Maggie teaches civil procedure and evidence, and her research uses theoretical, mathematical, and empirical methods to study how legal actors should and do make decisions. Her article, Hindsight Evidence, was recently published in the Columbia Law Review. As its title suggests, the article explores the use of ex-post outcomes to evaluate a party's ex-ante decisions and actions. Such hindsight evidence is often disfavored by the legal system and society generally as a form of Monday morning quarterbacking. Maggie, however, takes a different perspective on hindsight evidence, arguing that it is not only relevant from a Bayesian perspective, but also that its dangers can be effectively managed through lessons learned in the psychological literature. Maggie, welcome to Excited Utterance. A pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me here, Ed. Let's dive right into your paper. How do you define this category of hindsight evidence, and what got you interested in the topic? So hindsight evidence is evidence of an outcome typically used to prove that the person who caused the outcome made a good decision or a bad decision. So this is sort of the flip side of hindsight bias, right? People are very concerned about hindsight bias that will use an outcome to inappropriately judge somebody who was operating under uncertainty. Here, I'm taking hindsight evidence for its probative value, saying it's true, we don't want to judge someone too much for the outcomes of their actions, but that outcome can actually often be probative of whether the decision was a good one or a bad one, a legally acceptable one or a faulty one. What got me into this, I started thinking about this paper when I was clerking. We had a case that arose under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is this law that provides that school districts and school boards have to provide an education for disabled children that is reasonably calculated to enable the child to receive benefits. And in this case, the administrative hearing officer at the administrative level had relied in part on the fact that the child had not progressed in that year of education. And so we faced the question of whether the officer could use this evidence of lack of progress to show that the plan that the school board had created was ex-ante unreasonable. I realized that the Second Circuit had twice at that point punted on this question, so I thought it was hard and interesting and thought about it and realized that the similar sort of outcome evidence could be used in a number of contexts and might trouble people in a number of contexts as to whether they could use it or not. So the primary reason why the legal system, and I think people generally think that hindsight evidence is not good evidence, is the idea that it is irrelevant. And in your paper, you suggest that in many cases, that assessment is wrong. So when is hindsight evidence relevant and when is it not? Or why is it relevant? It's relevant because bad outcomes tend to correlate with bad decisions. 
if I may dive into briefly Bayesian reasoning, which I hope that the listeners of your podcast will be willing to countenance for a bit, there's this idea that evidence is probative of a hypothesis to the extent that that hypothesis is more or less likely to generate the evidence than its negation. So in this case, you have two factual possibilities. In one scenario, the defendant is making a good decision. The facts are such that the decision was reasonable. In the other scenario, the decision is such that it was unreasonable. The defendant's making a bad decision. We know from our experience in the world that bad decisions are more likely to produce bad outcomes than good decisions are likely to produce bad outcomes. So a negative outcome will correlate with a bad decision and tend to prove that the decision was bad. This only really works if and because our legal standards are generally designed to correlate creating good outcomes. If you were to have some standard where conduct was illegal for some reason entirely unrelated to the outcomes it tended to create, then hindsight evidence would not be probative of whether an actor met that standard or not. But in negligence cases, say, when you're deciding, okay, was this person behaving reasonably or unreasonably, a bad outcome does tend to correlate with unreasonable behavior. If hindsight evidence is thus often relevant, then exclusion of hindsight evidence will likely have to be a matter of Rule 403, which of course requires this balance between probative value and unfair prejudice. How should we assess the probative value of hindsight evidence then? So the probative value is really to the extent to which it tends to prove one hypothesis over the other. So the extent to which one party's proffered set of facts is more likely to produce that evidence than the other party's proffered set of facts. One example I use in this paper, which I think illustrates it decently, is you have a police officer shoot someone and says he shot the person because it looked like the person was about to draw a weapon. If the person's family sues the officer, should they be allowed to introduce evidence that he was unarmed, that he did not have a weapon? In this actual Seventh Circuit case, Sherrod versus Berry, where they address this issue, there's a conflict about whether the person had reached into his jacket pocket quickly, like he looked like he was about to draw a weapon, or whether he reached in kind of slowly and casually like he was going for a wallet, which is what was actually in his pocket, some identification. So if you have these two competing factual stories, reaching quickly like he's drawing a gun or reaching like he's reaching for a wallet, the question is, how likely is this evidence that there's no gun? How likely is it that that will result from the quick draw as opposed to the slow motion? And the difference between those is really the probative value of this evidence. And in many ways, res ipsa loquitur is also an example of why hindsight evidence is probative. And that's where you use your framework to cleverly explain res ipsa loquitur, which to many a law student has always been a mysterious doctrine. You have this sense that there's this outcome that is so much more likely to result from some sort of negligence that you're willing to just find for the plaintiff based entirely on the outcome. It's in some ways a little bit different because I'm talking about these real competing sets of facts, whereas res ipsa, you don't really have to prove the mechanism by which the person was negligent. But you're saying that all of these ways that the person could have been negligent, they're all combined just so much more likely than any accidental way that this could have happened, any reasonable way this could have happened, that you'll find liability. So in many ways, what's going on in res ipsa is you're saying hindsight evidence is so probative that therefore you have reached your burden of production, or at least the plaintiff has reached her burden of production. Right. So let's look now at the other side of the balance. 
We talked a bit about probative value. Where's the unfair prejudice with hindsight evidence? So the unfair prejudice with hindsight evidence is really in hindsight bias and outcome bias, which is closely related. So hindsight bias is people's tendency to overestimate the ex-ante likelihood or predictability of something once it's already happened. And outcome bias, relatedly, is judging somebody's decision based on the outcome, not through an adjustment of your probability that would happen, but just a sense that the decision was bad because the outcome was bad. So there are these two very closely related biases, which have been studied in the literature very extensively since 1975, when Baruch Fischoff started studying these with pioneering hindsight bias studies. And so this is the worry, that people are going to take this evidence and say, not only is this probative to the extent that I've said it's probative, but this is really dispositive or it's really, really strong evidence. I'm going to conclude that this person was in the wrong because of this outcome and not appropriately calibrate my change probability based on the actual probative extent of this evidence. In doing this calculation, though, you are implicitly assuming that it is a legitimate use of Rule 403 to police juries from overweighing the evidence. I think it is. And I do think that it's possible that this hindsight evidence, even though it's probative, if judges were to read my paper and fully accept my theory, would be eliminated, would be excluded in a number of cases anyway. There are some places where it seems like hindsight bias might be very strong, where the probative value might be fairly weak. And judges might say, you know, despite the fact that this is relevant, and it is to some degree probative, it is going to be substantially outweighed by this risk that the jurors will afford too much weight to the evidence. And so it's excluded. And that's certainly a reasonable consequence of the paper. I have to admit, though, that at least personally, this second guessing of the jury's weighing powers, as opposed to, say, guarding the jury against using improper considerations or something like that, this second guessing has always made me slightly uneasy because it seems to infringe on the jury's domain. It feels more appropriately handled by, say, a directed verdict mechanism than admissibility rules. Is there any reason to believe here that, number one, admissibility rules are the way to handle this, and number two, that the judge is especially better at weighing what hindsight evidence is good and what is bad than in other contexts in the evidentiary scheme? It's certainly a worry for me, too, and it does all feel extremely messy to say that the judge, who is certainly not going to be much better situated than the jury in terms of figuring out the probative value of the evidence, he or she gets to make the calls to what the jury hears. I will say, you know, 403 does seem to contemplate this, the idea that unfair prejudice will kick out some evidence. And so I think if we're falling within the scheme of the rules, and I do try to keep this paper kind of squarely within Rule 403, that's the sort of determination that 403 contemplates. And so the judge should, under that scheme, be allowed to do it. In terms of whether the judge is better situated, there's some evidence from the research by Chris Guthley, Jeffrey Klinsky, and Judge Wistrich that suggests that judges may be somewhat better than jurors at figuring out the probative value of this evidence and really not succumbing to hindsight bias to the same degree. So they may have some level of advantage that they can use to determine whether this evidence is unfairly prejudicial. But I admit it is a tough determination, and I'm somewhat troubled by it as well, that you have somebody who's human himself or herself deciding how much weight this has, deciding whether this is so unfairly prejudicial that the jury should not be able to hear it, 
there is worry on the other side that the judge himself succumbing to hindsight bias will not realize the extent to which this biases somebody's information processing and will give it to the jury when perhaps under some mathematical weighing scheme, knowing the juror's psychology perfectly, you would not give it to the jury. That's not as much what you're concerned about. You're concerned about not giving it to the jury enough, which I understand. Let me address another facet of the 403 analysis. When evidence generates unfair prejudice, it could be excluded, but often courts also try to cabin or reduce it. How do we reduce the hindsight bias in this context? So I think there's a really cool mechanism, and what I like about it is that it doesn't rely on judges as much as on lawyers who have a really better incentive to try to reduce the prejudice against their clients. And that's this consider the opposite strategy, which we find in the psychology literature. The idea is that hindsight bias results from what's called creeping determinism. You hear about an outcome and then sort of create this single story that leads inevitably to this outcome, and you can't let go of that story. And that's why you think that the outcome is so determinative of what happened coming beforehand. Consider the opposite forces people who are going to be subject to hindsight bias to think of alternative ways that the scenario could have played out to say, okay, the auditor said that this company would succeed and it was healthy. The company failed. This seems like the auditor was unreasonable. But okay, let's think about different ways in which, given that earlier situation, the company could have succeeded, how things could have gone right. And then a lot of studies have shown that jurors who are forced to write down alternative ways things could have played out and alternative outcomes, those study subjects had hindsight bias decrease substantially. So I think this naturally plays out in the courts where lawyers try to flesh out this alternative story in favor of their clients. The defendant made this decision, which seems bad now that there was a bad outcome, but let's see all the other ways that the defendant's decision could have gone right. This is what the defendant was thinking at the time. This is what he was seeing at the time. And this is why it was not such a bad decision at the time that he made it. And so this has been shown to decrease hindsight bias in a number of situations, usually in these studies where it works really well. You actually have the subjects write down the alternative outcomes themselves. And I think that might be a bit unrealistic for the courtroom. But because you have the defense lawyer really fleshing out another possible outcome, I'm sort of optimistic that hindsight bias in the courtroom will be somewhat attenuated. That was one of the interesting takeaways from this section about reducing hindsight bias. The trial setup is already designed to reduce the hindsight bias, both because of the consider the opposite strategy, which, as you suggest, the opposing attorney already has all the incentives in the world to engage in, but also because there's another strategy that you raise in your paper, which is about consequence severity and how juries are more likely to reduce their hindsight bias in response to known severe consequences. That, of course, is handled by the trial itself as well. The solemnity of the trial and the entire setup is designed to make jurors focus in this way. The evidence for that is not quite as robust as the evidence for the consider the opposite strategy. There are just a few studies that really hint at the power of that. But I like that in some ways because it seems intuitive. You can kind of see that when you're making some snap judgment about someone like, oh, they did something wrong, that was terrible, you might be more willing to sort of attribute unreasonable behavior to someone based on their consequences. But then when you realize that it's going to affect this person's life to make this negative decision, you might try to see things more from their perspective and bias might decrease. And there are these couple of studies 
that showed that when people are reminded, if you find that this auditor who judged that the company was okay and then it failed, if you find that they acted unreasonably or unprofessionally, they're going to be kicked out of the industry and they'll never be able to work again. And there'll be all these terrible consequences. People stop and say, okay, hold on. Let's see whether this person really acted as badly as they might seem to have just judging from the outcome. And so I think that's going to be really uh, powerful at trials. But again, there have only been these one or two studies that have suggested that. Now, if this is true, that the system already tries to de-bias the jury from hindsight bias, is it fair to say as a bottom line then that your position is that hindsight evidence should generally be admitted? It is both relevant and unlikely to fail the 403 standard, and that therefore hindsight evidence should really only be excluded in unusual or extraordinary circumstances. I'd say overall, that's likely my position, although I wouldn't say that's a strong one I take in the paper. The point of the paper is really just to get people to appreciate the relevance and to give them a schema to think about it, as opposed to taking a strong position on whether it's going to be admitted or excluded. Certainly in the situations that I look at in the paper, I think often it is going to be fairly relevant. This idea of the officer shooting somebody and there being competing versions of the facts, there I think that it's fairly likely that it will be sufficiently probative that it's unlikely that any prejudice would require to be excluded under 403. But there might be some where a judge could say, you know, this evidence really is minimally probative. And because of certain factors we might know about the hindsight bias, some studies have shown that when the consequences are more severe, for example, the hindsight bias is increased, although the results on that are mixed. They might say that because of certain quirks about the situation in front of them, we expect that the prejudice will be great and the probative value here is really quite small. So I wouldn't say universally this should be admitted, but I would tend that way and Rule 403 itself tends that way, that it has to be substantially outweighed by this risk of unfair prejudice to be excluded. And because it often will be fairly probative in many situations, I think it should likely be admitted. A final question before we wrap up. What are the unfinished issues in this area of law? To your mind, have you said all you wanted to say about hindsight evidence, or are there additional or related avenues that you are planning to explore in future work? So one question that I've thought about that I didn't quite address in the paper is sort of when hindsight evidence can be dispositive. We have this idea that it should be admitted and probative, but I think people get very uncomfortable with the idea that if this is the only evidence in the case, a jury should be allowed to find based on hindsight evidence entirely, that hindsight evidence alone can carry a plaintiff's burden. I think that's a tough question and really kind of brings out even more anxiety with the use of this evidence. We see this in some of these police shooting cases where all they have is that the person didn't have a weapon. And we don't quite get to the evidentiary question, but there's a summary judgment motion and the court inevitably grants the motion in favor of the defendant saying, just because he didn't have a, a weapon, that's not enough for us to allow a jury to find that this was a Fourth Amendment violation. So I do want to look in future work at when this sort of evidence or other similar evidence can be dispositive. This sort of relates to statistical evidence, the idea that courts are hesitant to allow juries to find liability based solely on some statistical evidence. I know you're familiar with the famous blue bus problem, where somebody's hit by a bus. We all we know is that the bus is blue and that 80% of blue buses on that block belong to company X. Is that enough to send the suit against company X to a jury? 
And so people tend to think that the answer to that is no, that the statistical evidence isn't sufficient. And I think there's sort of this similar idea with hindsight evidence that this evidence is not quite case-specific enough. There's something that's not quite right about it to let it go to a jury. So I think I might want to explore that sort of question in the future, looking at what it means for evidence to be case-specific, why we might be uncomfortable with allowing this evidence to carry a party's burden. And so that's what I'm hoping to look at in the future. Well, Maggie, thanks so much for coming on the show and bringing this interesting topic at the intersection of evidence and inference and psychology to our attention. I look forward to engaging with your future work. Thanks so much for having me, Ed. It's been a pleasure. Maggie has done a wonderful job highlighting and providing a theoretical framework for thinking about hindsight evidence, a category of evidence with important implications in a variety of legal contexts. Although not directly stated, her work also raises a broader, more fundamental question. As social scientists continue to uncover the weaknesses underlying human cognition and inference, what should the legal system do in response? The obvious response is to structure legal proof through things like admissibility rules to correct for the cognitive limitations of juries. Yet at some point, the rules will begin to impinge sufficiently upon jury decision-making to make us ask what we as a society really care about. Should the emphasis only be on accurate fact-finding? Or is there something special about the democratic function of the jury that requires us to tolerate some of its flaws and foibles? As Justice O'Connor noted in Tanner v. United States in the context of jury misconduct, and here I paraphrase, it's not at all clear that the jury system can survive our efforts at perfecting it. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Alex Nunn, and production editing was performed by Carson Smith. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.